Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Uh, it's not brought to you by anyone. We decided we don't want sponsors uh, this episode. We don't need the money. So um, on this episode, we are going to review the Amazon Prime original movie, The Vast of Night. And then um, we're going to do a draft version of a top five I believe we've already done, which is uh, directorial debuts. But this time we get to draft against each other and see who has the best five uh, directorial debuts. Number, please. Hello? Large object holding over my land. This is WOTW Radio in Cayuga, New Mexico, and this is the news for the hour. Now, what would you like to tell us about yourself? I don't know. Cool. Aren't you like some big science girl? Tell me about science. Everett, it's Faye. I'm a sound king for the board. I interrupted your radio show. What a sound. What's going on, Everett? 718 here at WOTW. We got a sound we'd like to play that seems to be bouncing around the valley tonight. Yes, I have a story that might be helpful. I can tell you what's going on. The sound we heard out in the desert. It was coming from thousands of feet higher than anything could fly. Okay, guys, so The Vast of Night, it's a new movie. It's actually kind of exciting every time we get a, a new movie to watch that uh, comes out on streaming. This time it's on Amazon Prime. Um, I guess you would consider it sort of a low-budget sci-fi thriller that um, takes place in the 1950s. And there's, a, I mean, basically to sum it up, there's a weird frequency that happens that this uh, radio DJ and this little girl who's um, playing telephone operator... <laughs> Uh, kind of figure out and it sort of leads to this bigger question about what it is and what what sort of uh, beings brought it around. And it was interesting watching this and it, it got me thinking about something that I've thought about a lot, but I've never had a chance to sort of bring it up on this podcast. And it's the fact that in the last, I would say, now 20 years television television itself has gotten so much better than we sort of grew up with in the 90s um and the reason i i bring this up is because this this movie sort of reminded me of like stranger things on netflix i don't know if you guys watch that show or are familiar with it um and it sort of had I don't want to say that it it was like an, an episode from one of those but it got me thinking about something <clears throat> that I've debated in my own head a, a while and it's it's does the fact that there's such good television out there hurt independent movies like these um, and I don't know the answer to that but if I'm watching this movie, and I think it's well done, and I think there's a lot of craftsmanship here, and it's a sci-fi movie that puts some money into 
the sci-fi aspects of this movie, but at the end of the day, was it episode one of a series, really? Is that what this is? And do I think that because I see such great television now that I can see them expanding this into a, a, a television series? Um, or is it because that's what this screenplay felt to me? And do you guys ever wrestle with that? Um, I wrestle with something similar. It's and I think that TV and the quality of TV, especially TV drama, has hurt a segment of film. But I don't think it's this. I don't think it's this budget. I actually think it maybe has even helped this budget because what it has uh, sort of taken part in eliminating is the 50 to $100 million movie because I feel like a lot of that money is being spent on... 10 episode series or things like that that are on HBO or Prime or Netflix or whatever it may be. And I feel like that's opened up a door for movies like this because before we either had, you know, we had, you know, through the 90s and everything like that, we had a lot more movies in that that budget range that we talk about all the time. Michael Mann movies, Tarantino movies, which we still obviously have some of, PTA um, even Scorsese movies of that time, obviously his movies have gotten a lot more expensive, but now we had those and we have had, you know, blockbuster, big budget movies. And now it's, we've gotten bigger budget movies and a lot more exposure of the micro budget movies like this, because that mid range has been lost maybe to TV. Um, and I miss those movies quite a bit. I'm, I like the TV that it's translated into. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I think the 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 changing landscape of television has had an enormous impact on how, how movies have progressed. I think, but I don't yeah, think I, that I, this movie <clears throat> factors into that. Other than that, it's it's more relevant, I think, because it's something that is a byproduct of what these TV series have been able to do, and now these these services stream original movies, and here we are. Yeah, and I forgot to mention that this was the directorial debut of Andrew Patterson. Um, yeah. Hence why we're doing our, uh, our our draft. So, Chapin, do you ever feel that sort of tear between movies and television now? And where do you stand? And does this movie have anything to do with that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I mean, I, I sometimes walk away. I think I have talked a little bit about this more around Fixie Season, but like, you know, finding the impact of a movie. Like what, what's the, what is the overall point? What's, you know, what is, what are they trying to say with this film? And, um, you know, like an episode of TV is part of a cumulative effect, right? Like one episode of Mad Men or one episode of Sopranos is one of 12 episodes for the, for the season. And then it's one of 70 or a hundred episodes for, um, the entire series. And so you can get away with, um, you know, having an episode that isn't, that is sort of not necessarily gimmicky, but, 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 but that, that can, that can be experimental in the sense that it doesn't have that sort of traditional, you know, culmination of a sort of a point at the end of it. But I, I really find that to be important in films. And, and as I get older and as we pay more attention on these podcasts, I, I miss that in films and it becomes something that I struggle with personally because I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to fault a movie like 
the vast of night. I think it's, it's a really innovative movie and I think it's produced in a way or filmed in a way or the, 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 the direct, uh, the directorial flourishes are, are very original and interesting. And I think the overall concept is, is an interesting one as well. But, um, I do think there's something higher at work that needs to happen for a movie to be great. And I think TV gets away with that. And, um, in this world where, um, you know, a movie like the vast of night, you know, 10 years ago, like, or or whenever you were talking about Jeremy at the dawn of this new golden age of television, you know, may not have had a place to go. Um, it now does. Like if we saw this in the theater, would we walk away and be like, like, I don't know if that was worth 12 bucks and you know, a babysitter for the two of you guys. All right. Well, that can kind of get us into when you talk about actual sort of directorial flourishes or what elevates it to a movie rather than uh, making this into a TV show that can get us into the vast of night because there's no doubt that um, Andrew Patterson tried, tried stuff to elevate this movie. I mean, there are right from the beginning, these crazy long uh, tracking shots that follow our camera, I mean, follow our characters in and out of this gymnasium through, literally through a whole town and then back without cutting, um, or at least we're meant to think that it hadn't cut. So there are definitely things that he's doing that he's trying almost too, uh, not too much, but just like, look at me a little bit to say, hey, I'm making a movie here. Um, yeah, I kind of struggled with how I felt about what he was doing in this movie. I think it's a good place to start because there are moments, especially, I, I don't know, you watch, we talk, we've talked for two straight years now about the, the, the wanner, the long wanner. I, I think on the last episode, um, or on the, um, not on the come and see episode, the, the Apollo 13 episode, Chapin or Jeremy, one of you guys brought up a question about what's better, the kind of seamless, one or that you don't notice that Spielberg and Ron Howard does, or the show off Alfonso Cuaron, PTA, Smart and Scorsese uh, type of one And this movie opens with the with the latter. So and, and so yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at that and I'm saying, okay, debut director. Yeah, that that's what I would do. Like I, Jeremy, I always think about if we were to remake Through the Woods, which we made ten years ago now. I would have way more long tracking shots in that movie because it's sort of, that's the thing now. That's what you do. That's how you make a name for yourself. You show that you can do that. So I had that reaction at the opening of this movie. But then the flip side of that are the the still shots that lasted a really long time, the still oneers, um, mm-hmm. which I think is the longest one on on the character of Faye, Sierra McCormick's character um, as the telephone operator. Just... Still camera on her for, I don't know what, guys, 10 minutes? Like, yeah, a long, I think it's just, just short of 10 minutes, yeah. A long time. And those, I thought, were gutsy and innovative and interesting and lended something new. Because I think in a scene like that where you're trying to establish characters, you're trying to move the plot forward at the same time, a director would try to find some kind of trick to make that interesting in a small space. Instead, he just puts the camera down and lets the scene play out. And I thought that was great. So 
There's yeah. two sides why, of that. I think he I does loved... some amazing things, and he also does some sort of cliche expected things that are well done. But I just I'm, I'm less impressed by now. Yeah, I mean the reason that it, that oneer uh, of the long shot, uh, uh, the still shot worked for me so well is because he f- basically that follows up his long oneer that follows the uh, characters through the gymnasium as they have that sort of quick-witted dialogue and i i noticed that the cameras the camera loved to follow but you you never really saw anybody it, the camera was almost in the shadows and you couldn't make out anybody and as an audience member it, it becomes a little bit frustrating um and i think purposely so that they that the director's trying to sort of frustrate you because you're never able to latch on to one character or another um you're just sort of hearing their dialogue and following from behind as they go in and out of shadows and then boom you cut to that you know 10 11 minute scene where she's at the uh the switch desk and of course a lot has to go right on her part as an actress um to make that work too I also wonder. So he ha- he follows up the the still long take with another yeah. similar scene that's um, mostly dominated by a monologue uh, by a character named Billy, who they talk to on the phone and, and lend some insight onto the sound that they're hearing over these radio waves. And in that scene, uh, multiple different times, he fades to black. And it's a, the scene is set up very similarly. We're on a different character. The, the shot is mostly on, um, on Everett, played by Jake Horowitz, um, listening to Billy. But in this scene, he fades to black a lot of times. And I couldn't help but think that in this particular case, he didn't have, the, he didn't have either the performance or the takes that he needed on that long shot that I think maybe he wanted to do again. So it had to, fade, so. Had to fade to black. Because it was strange yes. to do that. Um, so there was an there was an instance where you have, you know, a rookie director maybe hasn't completely like uh, perfected his craft, and again I'm gonna I, I hate to keep bringing back the movie that you and I made, Jeremy, but our opening scene of that movie we tried to do all in one take. We tried to kind of pan around the room and then go back and forth from one side of the character to the other. And it just didn't work. It wasn't steady enough. It didn't work. So we faded to black and inserted credits. And we had the credits to justify putting that black there. But again, it was an example of where the scene didn't work. We had to do something and fading to black was really our only option. And so I was reminded of that. So again, like I said, you saw such flashes of, of, good directing here, but you also saw instances where this was somebody that doesn't have as much experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I might've, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how effective those scenes are or not while you're, when you're on the actors for just that single time period. But, um, you know, like maybe spend a little more time in those scenes than, I mean, the, the, com- the complexities of that shot when they walk out of the, the operator room and jump on a moving vehicle and, and, you know, race through the town. I mean, it's, it's an incredible shot. And, and especially on a film with a budget of less than a million dollars, like how do you do something like that? But, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure that it told much of a story. 
Like, I don't know really how effective that yeah. that was. And, and it's cool to see, like, I definitely like little flourishes like that. I, I like that. And, like, I think more than you guys, I, like, I, I kind of look for stuff like that. But I didn't find it to be, I was like, oh, okay. This kind of woke me up from, you know, this sort of boring 11-minute <laughs> well, shot of this girl who's not quite a good enough actress to have a camera on her for nine minutes. Oh, that's interesting. I thought she was really good, Chapin. Yeah, but I thought she was I, really good. I, I want to go back to y- your point that you, you opened with, Chapin, because I think it's interesting about what you're looking for in a movie, what you need from a movie in terms of, a, you know, to, to put it very simply, kind of a, a beginning, middle, and end of the story. And, you know, maybe uh, an additional layer of that is, like, what is this story trying to tell us or, or say? All right, does it have a broader a broader thought? And you could definitely make the argument, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute it that that that's missing from this movie for sure. But I also think that this movie is more than just I, its shots and its sound design. I think there I is think something interesting here. I think it's a, a really interesting exploration of 1950s small town. And I, I am just drawn to that. I think that that's just interesting in movies, you know, movies like the last picture show and badlands and even Greece and parts of back to the future, I think are just, sort of fascinating time period to look back on in film, and I like that, so that could just be something that I like about these types of movies, but there's these lines of dialogue at the beginning of the movie where they're talking about the squirrel biting through the electrical wires, and just, that's the big story in the town. Everybody knows it, everybody's talking about it, that's the big news of the night, and I liked that, and I like that, you know, when she's trying to call around, she can't get in touch with anybody, and she just keeps repeating to herself that everybody's at the game. I like that the whole town is in this one place, so... There was this interesting slice of life element, and the mise en scène of that captured me. I like I like that a lot too. Um, I thought that was fun. I don't I don't know that that's going to be enough to give it a thumbs sure. up for me, but um... I I think where they try to incorporate sort of another level to this movie and is when. And spoiler alert, I guess, is when we can get into what the aliens represent. Um, and they co- kind of go right out and say it as the uh, like the aliens represent human weakness and, and, and their morals and sort of a higher power. Um, I think that's where they try to <clears throat> um, engage on a, a little bit of a more sophisticated level, but Again, it's debatable whether that really works, and I, I would say it doesn't. They try to hand-fist hand it in, in there. I liked the introduction of the of the aliens. Like the, the, the fact that that's where the story goes was predictable, but intentionally so. I mean, this movie pays a lot of homage to things like The Twilight Zone and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it doesn't shy away from that. It embraces it and it doubles down on it in, in many ways. So I liked that. I, I could have done without the the uh, the resolution of that. I, I almost felt like it would have been more interesting if, and again, this is a bit of a spoiler, but I, I almost would have been more interesting if we never saw that spaceship at the end. Um, what I thought would have been really interesting, and this is a bit prescriptive, but, you know, uh, if... We just see them kind of running out into the woods, and then we cut too much later, and we get that final shot of the tape recorder on the ground without ever having seen 
the spaceship, that would have left us guessing. It would have been a little bit more of a mystery. We never get a full resolution. You know, we hear the story from Billy. We hear the story from the old woman. Uh, and we get some inference that maybe they're telling the truth, but never know for sure. Then, then this becomes, I think, something a little bit more interesting. But by putting that shot of the spaceship at the end, you know, basically confirming everything we've heard all of the characters theorize and talk about throughout the movie, then then it's becoming this story that I think you guys have a problem with that isn't quite layered enough to, you know, justify a whole movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm glad we saw the the, the aliens, though. Um, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for anything to happen. And wow. I'm glad I'm glad that I'm glad we saw that. Um, and I think that that scene was very, very well done. And again, it like, was. Um, uh, which one of you, you guys was the had the idea of debut per, d- debut directorial films? I did. I did. I think that's a really good choice because I think it helped me understand why maybe I felt this film didn't live up to what I wanted it to be. I mean, the movie has an 84 on Metacritic. That's better than the film Arrival, which is crazy. Um, but it's getting uh, a lot of buzz. Um, you have to wonder if it's <laughs> lack of options this year too. That um, might influence that. Yeah. So, but um, again, I mean, I guess my biggest my biggest problem with this is I think you see this a lot where um, the these these guys on this podcast that I listen to have a term called a calling card movie, and they they talked about this you know on follow the you know when they reviewed following Christopher Nolan's movie mm-hmm. you know it's like a movie that kind of shows your skills as a director and you can like you know shop it around and show people what you can do and get another job on it and you know this guy made did everything on this film he wrote it directed it produced it edited it he hired a really good dp which i think was a smart idea um but besides that he did everything and um i think that that's a really it's a really good uh example of what he can do but i think the problem with this and what i think you can kind of glean from at least my list is that the films that really stand out are the ones that you know say something they say something they have something to say on their first outing out it's not just like a not that following didn't but like it's not just like a here hey look how good i am at directing you know it's like they actually have a a, a point of view and and that's what i was looking for and that's what i find so interesting about young directors and, and directors who aren't you know necessarily doing films for a paycheck this this movie this movie cost the director quite a bit of so money. tape and where how do you think that that are that argument um falls in terms of uh, debuts for for writer directors versus just directors like this he wrote and directed this following obviously Nolan wrote and directed I think a lot of kind of significant debuts come from writer directors but you know you have directorial debuts when somebody gets a script and they direct the shit out of it and maybe they right. don't have a script that they can say something with so they use that opportunity to show what they can do as a as a filmmaker well it's a great it's a great question i mean most of my movies are writer directors i mean i think i and this might just be my bias but i do think that i i really respect directors guys who come in and ladies who come in and just make 
add, you know, be, they they make a movie or they add themselves in as artists to films through the directing. It means that their their skills, their signatures, their what what they do as directors are even more important than they would be if you were, you know, a writer director. But you know, I have to be honest. Uh, I think, you know, um, I think six six out of eight of these on this list are are writer directors. And you know that usually, if you have something to say, you start with a screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it became a little painfully obvious between everything, and we can kind of go over this and you guys can tell me what you thought of each aspect of it, but it became a little obvious that the director slash writer was saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look what I can do. I mean, you talk about that opening shot. I would, I would argue, and I like the dialogue, but I would argue that dialogue is a bit too witty and a bit too over the top for what the movie is or what the movie needed. It was a little bit too quick um and then cool. well and let's then start also... let's start there let's start there because i think that that i like okay. that dialogue because i did know, too you, i did both, too but i think it was a bit talking, look at me it may be okay that's fine but i i also think the actors pulled it off i liked both of these actors I'm, I'm interested to hear chapin a little bit more on what you thought of these actors and why but i i liked them both and i thought they both pulled off that dialogue which i thought was specifically necessary because a little bit of what you guys have been talking about that not a lot happens here i mean there's some very slow moving scenes so you need something to energize this movie and i think some of that dialogue works and some of the repetition of the of the lines of dialogue work like i mentioned talking about the squirrel biting through the electrical wires and everybody's at the game like i think some of that repetition was clever to kind of reel you back in and and keep you keep your attention and that needed to be there to allow these still 10 minute shots to function effectively and and not have you fall asleep and i for me that worked so just on that point i think it was i think i I liked it and i think it worked and it sure maybe it's a little look at me but that doesn't matter if it works okay well let's step back for a second though okay so let's say you i mean we we're talking about this from this interesting director who is showing off a little bit you know etc but in a movie of this scale where you're not going to get a lot of action where you're not going to get a lot of um you know you're not gonna it's not going to be striking visually the whole time um I think like more needs to happen. I, I'm sorry to be so sort of blunt about that and, and not but say it very true. eloquently, but like, you know, sure you can show off and, and you can have this witty dialogue and you can have these tracking shots and, and, but I mean, they're only kind of with the exception of that one shot where I talked about, you know, obviously the guys jumps onto a go-kart or something and races through town those shots walking into the gym are only impressive because this is a low budget movie, you know, like plenty of people could do that. It's not like it's that particularly original. It's well done and it looks great, especially considering like, you know, most directors would spend a million dollars shooting that. And he's, he made a whole movie for less than that, but I don't know that it's interesting beyond that. And so like, if we were to sit down and choose to watch this movie over, 
you know, Soderbergh's latest movie or Scorsese's latest movie or, you know, even name any big budget movie that or that anything else you might on offer. Or Greyhound, yeah. <laughs> like, would, like, does it stand out amongst those? I don't think so. And I think, you know, you, you have to, better than Flying Bird or whatever that's. Soderbergh movie. Well, that's was. interesting. He he kind of discovered this movie when he was taking High Flying Bird to Slam Dance, I think. Yeah. But right, he, what's what's next on your list, Jeremy? Or go ahead, Javen. No, no, that's that's fine. Um, the score, which actually I, I really liked, and then the special effects of the alien ship. So that I would wa- sort of round out the. I wondered if this. I liked I liked the music. I wonder if it, it's at times felt bigger than the movie and okay. out of place. That was a critique I wrote down. I, I, I like, I thought that it, I thought it fit the movie in terms of the, the tone, but this movie's a, you know, we've been talking about it. The budget is less than a million dollars. It's, it's, it's paced a very intentional way. Not a lot happens. I know we keep saying that it sounds very pejorative, but it's, you know, kind of true and then this music feels a little bit bigger than the rest of the movie and i was and i thought that that just seemed wrong i i felt like this was a movie that needed like like a couple guitar strings you know and that's it like a clint eastwood score (laughs) i actually didn't find the score to be um distracting i didn't either um I, i actually really liked it and I'm on just a complete opposite page as you guys on this movie. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about the uh, the visual the effects were good at the end. I thought that that was yeah, totally and, and I thought he filmed them did, in a really yeah. interesting way. Like it wasn't it wasn't necessarily scary. It was like a little haunting, but they mm-hmm. weren't like moving in a way that was like aggressive. I thought it, I thought that was really well done. Again, like all these elements are really well done. But again, what did they? add up to say are are they that interesting to watch yeah yeah no i think i think to go to your point shape and it's something i wrestled with too is i hate to use the word again but i feel like i feel like the stakes weren't there and the stakes just maybe appeared at the end out of nowhere kind of like the aliens did um but throughout the whole film i just didn't i didn't see the urgency or feel the concern as a viewer that I think the director wanted me to feel with this. I mean, they were literally just trying to get you to, to feel this through some sort of staticky sound. I feel, I feel more anxiety when we start our podcast and I have that, that sound than I did during (laughs) this movie. I agree. I I think, I, I think he tried to use the, the monologues from, from Billy and the old woman to really, uh, highlight that highlight and they the were good and they were but i i agree with you that i don't think as an audience member i ever really felt that this was anything significant you know like i i never felt like this was something that was either a threat or or something that just needed to be anything but ignored by by the rest of the world like i just it just felt like it it was like this this was just being told to me but i wasn't i wasn't experiencing any heightened emotion from it no it's a, a good comparison movie to this is um 
that Cloverfield movie with John Goodman. Oh, because ten, that's Cloverfield ten Cloverfield Lane. Lane. Yeah, ten. Yeah, ten Cloverfield Lane. Because the, that's a movie that also exp- sort of expands at the end, but is uh, the majority of the movie is very small and takes place, you know, in this one like teeny area with three characters and we're sort of isolated just like we are in the vast of night we're isolated with these characters in this town in 10 cloverfield we're isolated with these characters in this bunker um and then it sort of expands outward uh when you realize how uh, sort of deadly the world is um outside and i think 10 cloverfield did that better now uh, also a directorial do you, debut. Do you guys feel that way? And if so, what what was the differences? Because I would say the direction I mean, maybe is better in this, in Vast of Night, but the the overall stakes and you know feelings you get as an audience member probably were better in Ten Cloverfield. Yeah, you I don't. don't I think, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you've got this. The, the John Goodman character is protecting them, but he's also like, does he have other? Yeah, you're exactly right. Like, there's no stakes until the end in the Vast of Night, and they aren't real. Like, like what ha- Like they they're searching for the aliens, but then the aliens find them. I mean, like, what even <laughs> what even happened? Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think that I think that's a great comparison. Um. What were you gonna say, Lee? Well, I I think it's an interesting comparison. I found that movie. 10 Cloverfield Lane to be really forgettable. I didn't like it, so it's. I found it interesting that that's where the comparison Jeremy made. I think it's an apt one, um, but I, I can't really comment it on beyond that because I just don't remember that movie very well. Um, the Cloverfield Paradox was just so much better. <laughs> All right, uh, I want to get into these performances because, like Lee, I uh, really enjoyed... Uh, both of them, both of these performances, um, particularly uh, Sierra McCormick. I thought she was really good in this movie. Because yeah, I thought she, she p- such a convincing, <clears throat> naive fifties teen. I thought, like, yeah, I thought she pulled that off so well. But Chapin, you disagree? No, I, I didn't think she was bad. I just think you you have to be quite a good actor to hold a shot for eleven minutes, and it's not just a testament of knowing I think she your did lines. It. Yeah, I thought she did. Because okay. she didn't even have a lot of lines. Like, it was, it was the, the timing of the delivery. Um, it, was, it was the way she had to repeat some of those lines. I know I've mentioned that before. And, and it's this naivete that I thought was very convincing. This, and it's, it's, that's, it's what made it important that this movie took place in the 50s. It's this small town, 50s nothing bad is going to happen mentality that she uh, that she portrays in a really great way, I thought. And, you know, you have her her counterpart, Everett, played by Jay Korowitz in this movie, who, you know, maybe plays himself off as a little more worldly. You know, he, he's a little bit more knowledgeable of technology and what what's to come and the potential of things. But, you know, he's probably equally as naive Um but she looks up to him, and I think she plays that really well too. And yeah, I don't know. I thought she handled that long, that long scene really nicely. And I thought, I thought they, they, this movie. I mean, everything we've said, you know, 
some good direction, you know, talented filmmaker. These the movie hinged on these performances completely. Uh, you needed to they needed to be good if you wanted anything at all from this. Done. Yeah, done. No, I mean I, I don't disagree. I think they were good. And you know, it, it it's not easy to deliver monologues like that and be on camera that long. And I yeah, I mean I that was sort of a flippant comment that, you know, you're making me regret saying. So <laughs> No one want to hear an unpopular opinion that doesn't really have anything to do with this movie. Yeah, but it's from the uh, the ten minute the ten minute take on her. Um, one of the most overrated scenes I think ever is that ten minute take in Hunger. The conversation over. Uh, I'd have to the table. I'd have to see that a movie again, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I've I've often wondered I, why. I thought this was better than that. Because that camera doesn't even move. That camera, if if I can remember correctly, that camera just is a, it's a still shot for ten. Well, it minutes. doesn't move in this either. You mean? Do you mean hunger? Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, that's what I said. Hunger. Okay. Which is Steve McQueen's Steve McQueen. debut. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I Which think there's be on a combination of, of things there too. I mean, that was kind of the first a lot of us saw Fastbender too, um, and his performance in that movie is really great. It's good. Um, yeah. And Sir Davos, so, right? Is that who the other guy in that scene is? I believe he's the priest. Davos, yeah. Um, yeah. I, so there you go. See hunger. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are we moving on? Yeah. Jeremy, you want to uh, um, you want to uh, talk about our, the, this being our our ten year anniversary of the podcast? Oh yes, I'd love to. It's uh it's our 10 year anniversary of the podcast. That's, that's incredible. I mean, that, given we took off what five of those years, oh, yeah, five four of those years. years. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, uh, Jul- but July been... 24th. So, uh, four days ago was the, re- the release of the inception podcast, which is really what everybody was looking for. I know the, everybody says like, Oh, I couldn't wait to see inception. It was really, I, I couldn't wait to see it and then listen to, the Get Your Film Fix podcast that had never been released before. Certainly how they, I felt. Did they re-release Inception in the theater? Did that ever happen? I don't know. But we Because if they did if they do, then we should re-release our first episode, which was Inception. And that'll get more v- listens. I mean you don't have to re release it. Go it's to just the on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Officially yeah, but nobody, re- you don't have to go stro- scrolling for it. Every time, yeah, every time I stop listening to, to the, the most current one, it starts playing the Inception podcast because it just goes <laughs> back to one. <laughs> wow, that's amazing! So ten years. Um, Congratulations! Yeah. And Chapin, us. we have a do we have a, a clip from from uh, we do from Brantley? Yep, we'll All insert right. it right now. Hi guys, Brantley here. Uh, just wanted to call in and give you um, kind of my. Uh, thoughts and everything and uh, say a hearty congratulations on get your film fix getting to the 10-year anniversary mark of our first episode Uh, first and foremost congratulations lee and jeremy uh, for being there from the beginning and and bringing the podcast to the point that it is now and uh, a hearty congratulations to chapin as well uh, for coming in and uh, taking over uh, my my role as the the third wheel, I guess, on the podcast. Uh, you know, my my thoughts being the uh, the original Chapin uh, for the podcast. Um, 
this was something that was a really fun, creative outlet at a time when, um, you know, I was out of college and wasn't really heavy into the filmmaking world. I was working in sports television at the time, um, but a lot of my work was not the most um, creative. And it was a very stressful job, honestly. Live sports television is is stressful. So this was like a fun way that, um, you know, I could be involved in the film world and, and, and have some sort of creativity um, outside of, um, you know, what I was doing for work at that time. So I, I really uh, liked... Um, starting the podcast and doing the podcast with you guys and running the site really that we that we ran for a while with it um, and there's a lot of a lot of fun great memories I, I I say third wheel before because you know I I think I sort of felt like a third wheel sometimes because Jeremy and Lee um, I think a lot of times were, were very much in lockstep in terms of um, thoughts and opinions but uh, well maybe not so much that but really just like the the types of films I guess that they wanted to to watch and review on the on the show and I'd like to think that um, I helped maybe steer the the podcast to some films that maybe wouldn't have gotten seen before just because I am such a, a genre fan so um, you know things like Hubble with a Shotgun or Rubber or you know Red State or Fright Night some of the more like genre films that normally um, aren't the prestige pictures that uh, get your film fix normally talks about um now for better or worse i mean rubber was awful hobo with a shotgun is what it is um you know but i think it was i think it brought a little bit more of a um range of films that we would have talked about and and so i think that's uh something that i really enjoyed uh bringing to the table um but there was just there was a lot of like fun things in that time um you know, just just being able to create things like we did and run the site was was good. I mean, I I feel, I think like a lot of people, you look back at some of the opinions you had uh, <laughs> when you were younger in your early to mid twenties, and just like, oh god, um, and just about things that just that didn't really matter, really, you know. <laughs> but uh, it was a really fun experience, and really the the biggest memory was meeting Leslie Bibb and Sam Rockwell. Uh, when we were at a film festival in Boston and, and Leslie's film Miss Nobody was premiering uh, there, that was just like, we went to an after party and, you know, I'm much more quiet and reserved and, and I certainly never would have like gone up to them because they were like the real big stars at this sort of after party in like a, a bar or restaurant or whatever. And and I just remember Jeremy just like, like it was nothing, just walking up and like introducing himself and telling them how we, you know, ran a film site and a podcast and blah, 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 blah. And then just Sam and Leslie, I mean, especially Leslie, just being like so nice and just so kind and down to earth and Leslie forcing us to try her beer because it was like a rice beer and didn't have gluten and stuff and just like... She was just such a kind, like, nice person. And uh, it was a really, really fun night and uh, was a real, real blast. And that's probably, like, one of the biggest memories. Um, And one of the nice things that the podcast and the site kind of opened the door to. We never would have been able to go as, like, uh, you know, representatives of the media, I guess, and and gone to an after party without um, having the site and the podcast. So 
that's what I remember, and uh, I'm very happy that um, Chapin has um, taken over uh, for me. I feel like he and I uh, both really enjoy sci-fi films, and so I, it's always nice when I hear Chapin discuss um, science fiction and, and uh, things like that on the podcast. I always kind of go, yeah, in my head a little bit, because I'm always going to push for genre films, I guess. Anyway, thanks, guys. Congratulations, and uh, I keep listening every time you put them out, so keep putting them out. All right, Chapin, I'm assuming you're going to be editing this. I'm also going to just put in um, another little thought and recording here on uh, the most recent episode you did about Apollo 13 and, and Hidden Figures. <clears throat> so I'll start that here in a sec. Three, two, one. Hey, guys, Brantley here. I just wanted to call in uh, with a little bit of a discussion about um, the last episode, Apollo 13 and Hidden Figures. This was actually really interesting because I co-teach a class at the college I work at called Hollywood History. Now, rather than it being a class about the history of like Hollywood, it's literally a history class where we watch historical films and then use our historical research to decide whether it uh, is a good representation of history or not. And I really, really loved that Chapin brought up how sort of odd it feels watching Apollo 13 now and seeing just how white it is in comparison to having like a more modern perspective, especially after Hidden Figures, because we we watch Apollo 13 and Hidden Figures in the same week. That was actually one when I came on to help co-teach it. I, I added that week was um, contrasting these two different space uh, history films. And it's really interesting um, because the students in the class will always do their own um, research. So they come in and decide, you know, whether they think it is or not. Isn't, I mean, invariably, students love Apollo 13. I mean, they, they, they tend to love both movies, but they love Apollo 13. It's so fun. And it's very much like a rah-rah movie. It's a, it's a, it's a heart warmer. And, um, and then, but we always talk like, you know, you know, everything we see, see in the movie, like it's very white. We don't see any people of color helping in the space program. And I always point out to them that, you know, it was actually some of Katherine Johnson's literal like research and like with of backup charts and math was used to save the Apollo 13 astronauts. Like they used some of her research that she had published through NASA to help bring them back home. So after having seen hidden figures, they, they do kind of recognize like, Oh yeah. Like they, they really don't show, you know, any of the, you know, people behind the scenes rather than, except for those right there in the control room. Um, and it's interesting because there's, you know, I also show a clip from a documentary about Apollo 13. You see, like, there's, like, you know, Asian Americans that are, like, part of that group helping to find them home. And I show them other photos of, of NASA um, control rooms and everything. And, and, you know, you'll spy, oh, there's, there's a black person in the control room there. But that didn't show up, like, in the movie. Now, do I think it necessarily detracts from the movie as a, as a whole or from a historical perspective? Not particularly. It's telling a very specific um, history there and it's telling specifically that, that those that are right there in that control room in Houston because we have to remember Katherine Johnson and a lot of those women were working at the Virginia NASA facility so um, you one could argue that it would be you know it would 
maybe take away from the action to be showing people on all these different NASA facilities. But I always point out too that like when that incident happened, that was a, everybody dropped everything to try to get them home, right? Like everyone, like probably all around NASA, all their different facilities uh, were helping to work on that. But, you know, we're essentially seeing the perspective of those in the Houston control room uh, working on it. So it's a, it's really, it was really kind of interesting to hear Chapin actually bring that up because that's something we talk about in that class. Anyway, I just wanted to add my thoughts. I love both of the movies, uh, Hidden Figures and Apollo 13. Um, not Greyhound. I haven't seen that one yet. I'm assuming that's garbage. I'll take your all's opinion. <laughs> but Apollo 13 is awesome. Uh, I've always loved it. And I like Hidden Figures. And it's just, it was just very apropos that Chapin happened to, to bring that up. So great job, guys. Uh, looking forward to hearing the next episode. Do you guys want to do our uh, draft? I do. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've done top five directorial. You know, I couldn't remember for sure debuts, and I could have gone back and looked, but I was like, I, we've never done it as a draft, and also, who cares? Let's just do it again. Yeah, Lee is our our resident historian here, and he can't, he I could, can't remember. Right. You know, I know we've done. I know we've done. Uh, oddly, we've done top five follow-ups to a directorial debut. Yeah. Oh, that's a good but, one. Maybe that was But it. I'm not yeah. sure we've maybe actually ever it. done debut. And I only really think that because I'm I'm like looking through my list and I don't remember doing a top 5 with a lot of these movies. So um all right. So yeah, maybe well, we've never done it. So it's draft format basically whoever gets what movie they get to keep it for the rest of their life and nobody can yep. watch it. Nobody else can watch it. That's it. It's Man, your movie. No, we just win. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, Lee, you can uh, you can get the first pick this yes. time. Right. I hate it all right. the first pick. <laughs> um, Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. It's got to be my number one overall pick. Are, are you, are you going to okay. start eliminating any of the classics? Nope. All up for all Everything's up, for up, yep. Ugh, okay. No criteria, Lee? I mean, it just had to be a feature-length debut. Um, you know, I had maybe a half criteria was that they had to make another movie since, but I don't. nothing really fell into that. I, I didn't really have any issues with that coming up, so. All right. All right, Chapin, what do you got? What are you taking off this list? Okay, I am going to go with what would be my most debated... Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and take it. The Shawshank Redemption, Frank Darabont. Oh, damn it! Wow, That's, uh, that would have been high on my list. That's a movie that we just don't talk about much, guys, on this podcast. I know for a movie that's so beloved and used to be—I mean, it's still liked by us, but it used to be like our. Yeah, know, it was my favorite for a long time. Yeah. I think at one point in everybody's life, it's been their favorite. Um. All right. Well, I'm gonna go with Terrence Malick's Badlands. Yeah, I didn't think that was gonna last long. Past your first pick, Jeremy. Um, okay. All right. I'm Number gonna. Number two. Gonna go a little less obvious. Um, with some of my picks here, but my number two is Carrie Fukunaga's debut, Sin Nombre from 2009. Wow. Have number you guys two. seen this movie? I mean, this is such a great movie. Like, it, yes, it's nothing to do with it. It's a really good movie. Nothing to do with whether or not you guys were going to pick this. This is just this is literally the second movie that I'd want for as a debut. Um, 
it's such a great, great movie. Uh, I've only seen it once, unfortunately. I'd love to revisit it. Um, but but what a what a burst onto the scene by Fukunaga, who's done such great things since he's been around. Obviously, he's got I was going to bring him up Bond movie. Um, when talking about you know uh, television versus uh, well, yeah, because he did True Detective, yeah, the long tracking shot that that tracking shot through the town reminded me a lot of that that shot in True Detective. Obviously, the True Detective one's a bit more complicated, a lot more people involved, but still, um, yeah. But this okay. is, a, I mean, Fukunaga is such a great director that just isn't isn't talked about uh, amongst his peers. You know, guys like Denis Villeneuve and you know that 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 new wave of great filmmakers that. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about it, including us. F- Fukunaga just is sort of left out. Uh, he's still obviously getting work. He's the director of No Time to Die, which moved up five days for its release schedule. I'm not really sure why, but that's movie news. Do you guys think that most maybe that has something to do with it? a lot of his work being in TV? Which part? But is it a lot in TV? I mean, yeah, he did I mean, like, True he Detective, did, but... He did see Nombre, Jane Eyre, and then um, he did True, uh, True Detective, Maniac. You know, he did a... Oh, that's right. He did Maniac. Yeah, and then I Beasts of No that. Nation was kind of a Netflix movie. Which is really good, actually. I don't really like that movie. Really? Yeah. Idris Elba? Yeah. <laughs> and my crew? Yeah. And Lynch. <laughs> All right, Chapin. All you're right, up. Chapin. What do you got? Okay, my number two is, or my my next pick is Blah, in the bedroom, uh, directed by uh, Tom Field. So he's only directed one other movie. Yeah, which the other That's movie crazy. I didn't like. I think I saw it with Jeremy. It was uncomfortable because of all the weird sex, but we got through it. Little and little then there children. was that weird sex in the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're talking about the weird sex with um, uh, what's his name? That's in Shutter Island. Yeah, Jack Early Haley. Jack Earl Haley, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Little Children is the movie we're talking about. Also yeah, I wasn't crazy brilliant, about that. Brilliant actor in Eyes Wide Shut. Yep, Nick Nightingale. Um, that's a great pick, though. In the Bedroom is such a great movie. I know. I it's It's been on, it's on HBO or Max or whatever the old one is, um, and I, I've been wanting to watch it so bad. I remember, Jeremy, another one that I borrowed from you that I believe you owned, yeah? I own it. Yeah, it's a movie I'd love never, to never watched uh, it revisit <laughs> since I've bought and it. See I'm if sure. it holds up. All right, who's next, y'all? All right, it's me. Uh, my, I feel like my picks are just the uh, sort of my greatest hits list, but I'm gonna go with In Bruges. Yeah. Oh shit, uh, that's a great one. Damn it. That was gonna that was gonna come up on my list. That's my number two. Um, it's obviously and one of my favorite movies of all times. Um, most quotable, one of the most quotable movies. McDonough is just a, a writer I like, even as a playwright, and I I can genuinely say that. Um, so Have you seen his plays? I or directed just... Pillow Man. You did what? I directed it when what? Uh, when did at this Brandeis. Happen? At Brandeis, really? about yeah, five years ago or so. I didn't know about you directing plays. I think I, I think I told you. I, even I, I knew that. New Jersey or something, you couldn't go. I mean, I was I was in Portland. I I knew about it. So, not tell, take not, that. Not telling me stuff. Um. All right. Uh, I'm gonna steal one from Jeremy here. My number three is Ryan Fleck. 
directing Half Nelson in 2006. Damn it. Yeah, that was on my list. Um, he's worked alongside Anna Bowden, Anna Bowden quite a bit. Um, he's technically the credited director for Half Nelson, um, but they usually work in tandem. And this is probably his best movie, although I really liked Sugar, which was um, his second movie. Um, it's kind of a funny story. It was a disappointment, and... I haven't seen Captain Marvel yet, but you guys all know how I feel about those movies. But either way, uh, Half Nelson is just such a moving movie and an incredible performance from Ryan Gosling and a great, great movie. Great. What about, what about that off? Didn't they do that awful movie? It's kind of a funny story that you guys reviewed on the podcast. Yeah, that's what I just said. Oh, sorry. and I didn't like that. Yeah, but his first two movies, Half Nelson and Sugar, are both really good. And Sugar, Sugar is a movie I, I would definitely recommend to people. It's not a movie you'd think would be very interesting. It's about a. Um, I don't know know if he's from Dominican uh, Dominican Republic or what, but he's a a pitcher, and it's kind of about, you know, athletes from Central America kind of making their way to the major leagues and that process and how difficult that is and that transition. Uh, It's really, really good. Nice. Great. All right, Chavin, what do you got for your uh, number three pick? Okay, so I'm going to go with... uh... So I'm, I'm debating between two sci-fi debuts, and I think I'm going to have to go with Ex Machina. Ah, fuck. Directed by Alex Garland. I'm curious what your other one yep. was, but uh, that was another... Garland was definitely one that was going to be on on my list. It's amazing how well. No, go I ahead. Mean, I'm looking looking at a, a few of our picks. How these debuts are all these director's best movies <laughs> yeah well uh, some of them only had a couple movies but, i mean but mcdonough mcdonough in bruges alex garland has only had a couple todd Fields only had a couple but you know Dar- darabont his shawshank's his best movie for sure <laughs> he hasn't done anything in a while no, God, you, no. you think he'd be eating out the lunch on shawshank forever but yeah he might, he might be difficult to work day. with yeah but who knows? All right. Um, that means I am up. So what do I want to... Oh, you guys have taken all my picks. Um, gonna, so I'm going to go with... Uh, I'm going to go with Gone Baby Gone. Fuck, that was my next pick. Ben Affleck's. Mm. Oh, come um, on, Chapin. I mean, that's a really impressive directorial debut. Yeah. You don't have to like Ben Affleck. I don't either. The town is immensely overrated. I think it's it, it, hating on Ben Affleck's overrated. I don't hate on him. I like that movie. I just I think, think there are the a opposite. lot better I think, duels or a lot better debuts. That's fair. I mean, I still think that has one of the best ending shots in cinema history. Him just sitting on the couch watching TV with the yeah. little girl? Yeah, that's, with that the is little a girl. good shot. That's a great yeah. shot. Uh, okay. All right, um, Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird. A um, couple reasons for this going on the list. I, 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 I mentioned this on the Little Women podcast. I, I questioned how she directed Lady Bird and was instantly the next big thing. But that that happened, so... That shows the impact of Lady Bird. It's a great movie. I really like it. I don't know that I would have 
then parlayed her into the, the most important, you know, second feature in the history of movies. But the fact that that happened shows you how important and significant Lady Bird is to everybody. And so I think that's that's important. Um, do, you, do you think that that movie, and this is going to sound like an obvious question, so I hope we can dig a little d- deeper. Do you think that that movie is just like inherently more appealing to women? Like, and I don't mean like, sorry, I shouldn't say appealing, but like, do you think that it strikes like a, a richer core? Relatable? Women? Yeah. More relatable? Probably. Um, I think the second time I saw it, I liked it a lot more. And maybe the first time I saw it, I, I felt that way. I felt like maybe I couldn't relate to it. Um, but I, I, I think the second time I saw it, it's, it's deeper than that. It's not just about being able to relate to the main character because Lady Bird is not a particularly relatable character. I mean, I th- she goes through relatable things, certainly, but the, the way she acts and behaves hmm. is well, maybe some girls sort of quirky. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak for, for women in that case, but I, I, I think that's certainly... In, just in that case. Just in that case. case. I, I mean, generally, I speak for women all the time. Like, Lydia, if has, she has something to say, she runs it by me first. Good, good, um, good. Smart. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't think it's an obvious one because I don't have an obvious answer. But So I saw Francis Ha for the first time uh, yeah. last week. You like it? Ha. Um, I didn't love it. Yeah, I, really like I had I had high expectations going in though because I you know obviously had heard so mu- so many good things about that movie. I had a hard time with her character. Um, yeah, I just hated I, her. I thought she, I thought she was on the spectrum or something. I just thought she wasn't able. Not just she was way beyond quirky and yeah to the point where she was he- like not socially adaptable and she was like what was she supposed to be like late 20s early 30s in that movie um and i just i just had too difficult of a time relating to her and and being and 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 you know being able to just say oh yeah she's just sort of a free spirit quirky person um that's just making her own you know journey in this world i just was like i was actually genuinely concerned for her and her future because she had such a difficult time interacting with people. Hmm. Interesting. I, I like her in that movie. I think I like the character in that movie. Um, uh, all right. Who's up? I think it is Chapin. Uh, Chapin, Chapin Hemingway. Number four? Yeah. I'm going to go with Michael Mann and Thief. See, yeah, I've never yeah, seen it. I've never it. seen it either. You guys got to see it. It's great. I would love... Uh, yeah, it's on my... It's like, for whatever reason, it's like the first one on my Prime watch list, Amazon watch I, list. It's not on Prime, but... It, so it shows up every time I turn my TV on. When I was thinking about this list, I was thinking about, like, what kind of stage are these directors setting for themselves? And, you know, like, Michael Mann was Michael Mann when he made Thief. It is so Michael Mann, that movie. Um, yeah. And... You know, so yeah, I think it's it's so good and it's so like kind of artistic and beautiful in this weird way. It's 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 really great. Oh man, this is All right. gonna be tough. This is a tough this is a tough one. I'm really debating between two. One I've seen more recently, we've actually watched it for this podcast. Um and really enjoyed it, and one I haven't seen in a while, but it really uh, stood with 
stood the test of time for me, at least in my head. Um, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with American Beauty. I'll do it. Okay. Mm. Sam Mendes. I mean, I would never have picked this if we hadn't revisited it for a 1999 uh, list. Um, I mean, it's, Jeremy has such a hard on for Sam Mendes after 1917 that. Well, well, I wasn't the only one who was surprised at how well this movie stood up. I know. Right? I, I, mean, I agree. I, it, it's, on my, it's, on my, it. it's on my honorable mentions. It's certainly one I thought about. I'm just giving you a hard time because you loved 1917. Right. 1917, the best movie ever made. So. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Speaking of the Wonner. <laughs> yeah. The showy Wonner. The showy. No, that was not the showy. That was one of the the hidden wonders. Yeah, you, you don't notice it. Yeah, you don't even know. Didn't even. They told us they were doing it, and I still couldn't figure it out. Um. All right, I'm having a really hard time here because my. I think the. The pick that makes the most sense for my number five, is not a movie that I particularly love, and I don't know that I want it on my on my list, but. I might leave it for one of you guys. I'm assuming you'll take it. It'd be interesting if you don't, because I'm going to go with um, Judd Aptow, 40-Year-Old Virgin. Hmm. I like that one a lot. Um, you know, I, I again, wonder how Jeremy feels about that, given our Aptow conversation. Honestly, I recently revisited part of 40 year old virgin i don't think it's stand i don't think it holds i mean it's up. certainly starting... problematic but um in some scenes but uh i'm not even talking about content i uh, just or, or so whatever pc-ness i, I wonder of it. jeremy if 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 we're seeing another shift in what we like in comedy like we Maybe. like we like mcdonough and lanthimos now but there was yeah. but when 40 year old virgin came out we were getting tired of you know office space and i don't know what are some right. other like late 90s com- american pie like things you know those yeah and we geared into 40 year old virgin which is the raunchy comedy with heart and maybe we're steering away from that now and so those movies aren't holding up i think so i think i i think that's a good observation i think uh our our taste in comedy is probably changed more than our taste in sort of other genres. It's getting sicker. <laughs> getting, getting so Now we're into Lanthimos. Yeah. <laughs> we started at we started at Tommy Boy and yeah. ended at Lanthimos. Now, now, now That's just, really funny. If Jeremy up. doesn't get dog tooth, he's just not interested. Yeah, if they're not, yeah. If they're not having sex with their if, siblings. They're not. It's not. And if then I'm eating them, if yeah. I'm not laughing and aroused, I don't like it. <laughs> All right, Chapin. Okay, my number one is Sexy Beast, directed by Jonathan Glazer. Yeah, uh, man, I need to see pick. that again. Um, I love that movie. It is so good, it, and it is so good. It is this, like, run-of-the-mill kind of, um, you know, British sort of villains movie, but so good. Just be- And just because of him. He just adds this flourish to it. Well, and, I, and he, Jonathan Glazer... I, I just am. This is a huge blind spot for me. I mean, I haven't seen Under the Skin. Um, I need. I saw Sexy Beast once a long time ago. I don't remember a frame of it. I remember not really being able to understand what um, what uh, oh, ben, Kingsley. ben Kingsley was saying. So yeah, big blind spot for me with Jonathan Glazer. Um, I got to get on that. 
All right. Ray Winstone's in that too, right? Yeah, I, that movie. I, that movie's really good. I'd I'd actually love to see it again. But I, it it's one of those on on the second viewing. I was like, this fuck, this movie is good. This movie's funny. It's two thousand um, guys. It's a twenty year anniversary. Let's do it. Let's do it. Perfect. I'd love to do it. I would absolutely love that. I I'd bloody love it to be widowed. <laughs> All right, that's a great idea. Um, God. What do I want to do? Okay. You got a lot to pick from, Jeremy. I know that's a problem, and I want you guys to. I, after my last pick, and I got groans. <laughs> <laughs> you want to blow us away? Uh, do I want to go with the pick that you're going to be like, oh, that's a really good pick, or am I going to go with the pick you're going to be like? Yeah, you want controversy. Really? Controversy. All right, I'll go with the really one. I'm going to go uh, Donnie Darko. Oh, that's a good Whoa. pick. I like that. Because Richard Kelly has just, like, ex- imploded after, since then. Yeah. <laughs> has he, what has he done? He did the box, oh, and it was just terrible, and oh, then I don't yeah, think yeah. he's worked again. <laughs> Um, yeah. No. So, okay. So the one, other one I was gonna pick, which I was, I'm surprised it's not on your list, Jeremy's Brick, um, from yeah. Ryan Johnson, and also uh, Moon from Duncan Jones. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That would have made my list. Um, I did not. There's even a couple think about I wanted that. to mention. Sure. I st- I just started but haven't finished, which is not a good endorsement, but only because of time. She's got to have it. Was and I was oh, just from Spike Lee. I haven't so, seen it. Yeah. The, it was so intriguing the the first like hour that I watched of it. Um, uh, Duel by Steven Spielberg. But is that um, technically so, his first movie? Well, yeah, it's a TV movie. They did release it in theaters, but yeah, who knows? No, but I wasn't there. I think there's one before that though. I don't think so. Um, and so my other sci-fi movie, Lee, was District Nine by Neil Blomkamp. Oh, I thought I did think about that. That's a great movie. I loved um, the performance in that movie from yeah, Charlton Copley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Moon absolutely would have made my list. You know what I'm surprised didn't make any of our lists, although it was going to be on mine, but I decided to steal some from you guys. Uh, Blood Simple by the Coen Brothers. Yeah, that was uh, right there in my honorable mentions. I also thought about American History X, um, although I don't think Tony K has worked again. Yeah, um, he doesn't own that movie. We're also so. missing the biggest one of all, which is Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah. I just thought we were going to leave that off because, you know, that's an obvious pick. There's also, like, um, John Huston did the Maltese Falcon, um, Robert Redford, Ordinary People. Uh, who directed Terms of Endearment? That was a debut, too. Uh, what was that, James L. Brooks? Yes, that's a debut. Kevin Costner, Dances with Wolves. I mean, there's a lot of Best Picture winners that were um, that were debuts, which is impressive. Bradley Cooper, Star is Born, Jordan, Jordan Peele, Get Out. Bo Burnham. Fixie nominee, Bo Burnham, eighth grade. That was what I was uh, debating between eighth grade and Donnie Darko. Interesting. You felt like you just had a little, you were afraid of recency bias? A little bit. Um, Do you want me to sum up our picks? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so Lee, you had Reservoir Dogs, Sin Nombre, Half Nelson, Lady Bird, and 40-Year-Old Virgin. Uh, Chapin, you had The Shawshank Redemption, In the Bedroom, Ex Machina, Thief, and Sexy Beast. Man, that's a long night watching those movies. And I did Badlands, In Bruges, Gone Baby Gone, American Beauty, and Donnie Darko. So there you have it. If uh, you know who won this game, feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. 
Uh, if you have one to add that we didn't mention, feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. Uh, you don't have to yeah, say so, me, even though my list is obviously the winner. What's interesting is no, none of the directors we've done retrospectives on made this list. Obviously, Fincher wasn't going to with Alien 3. Yeah, um, I, but, but no PTA could have, no yeah. And, and no... Um, no, Reservoir Dogs made it, though. Oh, yeah, Reservoir Dogs. Sorry, oh, yeah. that's right. My Tarantino. first overall pick. Forgot <laughs> so long ago. <laughs> Feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. You can tell Lee how big of an idiot he is. Ah, for fuck's sake. Um, We're going to get uh, sponsors back. Don't worry. We'll probably get some sponsors back. That, I Are think, is going to wrap it up. Are there any laws against tobacco marketing in podcasts? I hope not, because they pay so. big. No, it's the Wild West out here. Yeah, yeah. You can do whatever you know what you they want. used to do in the Wild West? Smoke. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so cool. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.